Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's program, as usual, we have Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth is here again with us in the studio today. Ruth, it's great to see you again. Good to see you too, Scott. And joining us by phone today from Phnom Penh, the capital of the city of Cambodia, is Richard Hill, host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. He's also a rotating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Good to hear your voice again, Richard, from Phnom Penh. Great to be here. It turns out uh, Cambodia is really uh, an, uh, an upcoming uh, tourist destination, so I'm enjoying the uh, some of the wonderful uh, things offered here. I, I'm sure you are, and, and we'll have to discuss the pronunciation in Phnom Penh later. Is Phnom Penh? <laughs> no, well, that's that's for another time. Uh, I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, which airs Monday evenings, 8 to 10 p.m., and producer of the syndicated Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. Today, we'll be having a wide-ranging discussion about the Supreme Court's extremist majority handing down deeply unpopular rulings on abortion, gun regulations, the separation of church and state, and, and much more. Many people are feeling angry and frustrated right now about the direction of our nation, where Donald Trump and the Republican Party seem to have hijacked U.S. domestic policy through undemocratic systems of the Electoral College, voter suppression, partisan gerrymandering, amid the, the Senate filibuster as well, of course. So, to get things started, Ruth Ann, would you be so kind to kick things off? I know you have some thoughts you want to share with our audience. Uh, as usual, I have too many thoughts. And uh, <clears throat> even when I narrow them down to one topic, there are a great many. So I'm going to have to read this so I don't leave anything out. Um, I want to talk about guns, um, and we'll see what happens. The news that former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had been assassinated at a public rally by someone wielding a homemade gun with homemade ammunition was horrifying. Another public figure assassinated, another instance of public gun violence, another disruption of a public event. On top of that, Japan, where gun ownership is so carefully and generally successfully controlled. Of course, we have also been so recently treated to more pictures of Washington, D.C.'s beautiful memorial to Abraham Lincoln, a president brought down by a man with a gun in a crowded theater. And speaking of the 4th of July, last week's gun attack on Highland Park, Illinois' 4th of July parade, that was almost really too much to process, but I'm processing it. Here are my connections to what were my completely personal reactions to these two events, with the understanding that the way people react to any event is shaped by that individual's lifetime of experiences, beliefs, and conversations. 
Abe's assassination did bring back learning about Lincoln's assassination at various stages of educational and philosophical development. Remembering the day JFK was shot with half, while half a continent away, I was on a class trip to Princeton to see Playboy of the Western World, which ends with the phrase I will always think of as Kennedy's epitaph, Oh, my grief, I've lost the only Playboy of the Western World. And my numerous viewings of Akira Kurosawa's towering film, The Seven Samurai, first in college and then again and again on videotape. It also brought back, as Highland Park did much more vividly, my history of parades, from standing at the end of my block with my mother as our local Memorial Day parade passed by, including a fire truck built by my grandfather's company, and then marching myself in that parade as Brownie, Girl Scout, and then again and again as member of the Woodbridge High School marching band. The great feeling of belonging to a community, of celebrating, and I admit of being special, almost always followed by picnics with town or family or friends. Here is one of the stunning moments of Seven Samurai, almost as strong in memory as getting onto the bus in Princeton and seeing our driver sobbing as the radio played the news. The moment when one of the coarse um, bandits besieging the farmer's town raises his gun aims at the samurai swordsman who has been most elegantly skilled as well as most efficient in dispatching the marauders and shoots him dead. In that moment, I saw the fact that any nobody with a gun could bring down a hero who had been fighting by different rules. This moment had a significance not matched by the American film inspired by samurai, The Magnificent Seven. It could not match. The only other film that communicates such a moment is Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, with the age of men has ended, the time of the orcs has come. And the final question I want to raise, you see I haven't answered anything, the final question I want to raise, did loosening Hollywood practices to permit more and more scenes of sex violence and sexual violence portrayed in loving slow-mo, glamorize and romanticize blood, gore, and how to make it? Is that what made the atomizing of human flesh, the arcs of spraying blood, and the ability of people who seem immune to the charms of picnics, parades, and grammar school to reduce a community or a nation to horrified despair? So much of the way we perceive our lives and the world we live in depends on who we've been, what we've seen and done, and who we are as a consequence. The older we get, the more complicated everything is, and therefore the harder it is to find answers. I have none. But I do know we need to grapple with this gun issue in a way that can accommodate feelings like this. Gun control, gun violence cannot continue to bow to the gun lobby, a willfully misinterpreted Second Amendment, a stacked court, and adolescent fantasies of power. What can be done, especially in the current political climate, I don't know. But we can't just throw up our hands, breathe sighs of relief that the caches of guns mentioned so many times in the January 6th investigation were not employed and go to the movies. Well said, Ruthann. Sobering topic. Yeah, it's just cataclysmic, I think. Richard, would you like to uh, share some of your thoughts this week as we... Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to see if I could comment a bit on, on Ruth's commentary and, and maybe draw her out in, uh, to uh, answer another question or to ask one. Please do. And that is, I will ask one, maybe she'll answer. <laughs> what's the role of the individual in terms of, or I should say, what's the role of the broader society other than Hollywood uh, and video games in um, nurturing and bringing these mass murderers 
to adulthood and, and actually to the point where they're committing these acts. I mean, are these like purely uh, individual anomalies or is there some societal petri dish which is contributing to their development? Well, as I said, I don't have any answers to much of anything. The only thing I can really do is fix the grammar of a sentence, but that, that's my skill. Um, I do think, when I, when I think about the complexity of my reactions to these issues, and I have complex reactions to every issue, um, it needs to be attended to. You don't know what's going to trigger somebody, what's going to make the difference between somebody who becomes a, a gifted actor and somebody who goes and shoots up a bunch of people. You don't really know what's going to trigger that. But you have to be aware of the messages that, the, that your behavior sends. I think most of us could enjoy the movies without about two-thirds of the gore uh, that we're treated to. I don't like it, and I, I generally don't watch movies like that, no, no matter how interesting they may be in other respects, because I really can't take it. And I imagine that some of that has to do with what parents and the, and the society in general allow children to experience or encourage children to experience. I can tell you about the gun I used to play with when I was a kid, and we played, I was Annie Oakley in all, all the games. I just pointed my index finger and said, pew, 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 and I was deadly. Um, I know that the little boy down the street who was younger than I was, when he came of age to start playing gun games with friends, uh, had a whole set of army men that he manipulated and slaughtered. And he also had a play gun that looked much more like a gun than my, than my finger ever had. And I think he, they eventually had to encourage manufacturers of, of squirt guns to make them, uh, to manufacture them in brilliant colors so that they didn't suggest real army weapons uh, that you could shoot your friends to death with a, in the pool. Um, children are, are terrifying creatures. I don't have one, but I have one and now two uh, great nieces and I have an amazing niece and I saw them grow up it's amazing what they process and it's amazing the sophistication of a lot of what they process. We can't blithely say they're just kids. Uh, so I would say one of the things we have to do is tell the politicians to stop telling the parents that they should be telling the teachers what to teach because the teachers actually are, are pretty well trained and certainly know the kids well enough to make good judgments about the raw materials that kids get uh, to think about. This doesn't mean that, that, that we have to um, coddle, overprotect, or script our children, but it does mean, I think, that we have to be more aware of the whole human being when we go for anything. If we say, oh, God, this is such a great movie, I'll take my kid brother, and, and we forget that half of the movie is people's in, internal organs splattering on the walls. I think we just have to be more aware that we live in, in a society and accept some of the restrictions that are placed on it and make some restrictions of our own. But I don't have any children, so maybe I am too, too much of a fantasizer and control freak. I hope that's a, an answer, Richard. Uh, that was an interesting story, and, <laughs> indeed. What about you, Scott? Did, did you have any uh, ways of somehow decoding this behavior to explain it through the lens of the broader society? Well, you know, I, I think we've all heard about these uh, lone wolf shooters who are influenced by social media, especially the kind of... Uh, uh, you know, the, the cultivation of hate and racism 
and uh, white supremacy that unfortunately is associated with a lot of these mass shootings. And then you also have those same set of folks who seem to be isolated and angry about their state in the world. And, uh, you know, they're told by, uh, you know, our, our culture, as well as the gun manufacturers, that uh, the way to get your man card and, and, you know, win the day and win your place, your rightful place in the world is to get a gun. And so those messages uh, fall on the ears of these folks who are, you know, sort of disassociated from the, the rest of society. And that's where it seems like a deadly formula. Um, and there's certainly not enough mental health counseling for, for young people in school or otherwise to uh, give them another outlet for their frustrations and anger. Um, I guess that's not an easy solution to arrive at, but it seems to be part of the problem. If, if I can yeah. butt in, it's, it's so much the catering to resentment mm. and the way that politicians, when they get a microphone, they just churn that up. Mm. Um, mm. And, and you can see people going, yeah, yeah. And that's not intelligent agreement. That's, that's resentment speaking. I, I do have one story to share about resentment and the cultivation of resentment. I was at the gym, back at the gym after a long hiatus during COVID. <laughs> and one of the exercise machines I was on had, had a TV monitor that was that was cemented into Fox News. I never watch Fox News, right? In fact, when it comes on, I have a visceral, you know, chill, and I shut it off as soon as possible. But I, instead of switching machines, I said, "Well, let me watch this for some time while I'm exercising <coughs> to understand the messaging going on there." Because I, you know, I hear about it secondhand. I don't watch it myself just because I can't stomach it. But I watched uh, Tucker Carlson for 10 or 15 minutes. And he, um, he had a, a, a profile of an act of violence in a bodega, I think it was in New York City, where a white uh, you know, store owner was attacked, was attacked by, by a, a black man and the bodega owner uh, stabbed and killed this attacker. So this whole thing was set up as black against white Good against evil. And the the punchline of the story uh, that um, Tucker Carlson told was that the uh, the bodega owner was, was charged and he was arrested and, and put in jail pending, you know, investigation of what had occurred in that uh, in that store. But uh, Tucker Carlson went on to uh, 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 link this story with um, George Soros and a whole list of uh, Democratic and uh, sort of progressive or left uh, actors and, and politicians. And this whole story was designed to get people angry, to cultivate resentment. And it was, you know, in terms of what it, what it presented to someone like me, you know, it was kind of crude. But I imagine a, a lot of people are very susceptible to that. And they might come out away from that 10 or 15 minute story um, seethingly angry at our system and the elites and the folks who uh, seemingly are, you know, sort of taking a stand against uh, what's right in the world and taking the side of what's wrong. You know, it was kind of a black and white portrayal of our society designed to get people really angry. Mm, Yeah, that's quite vivid. I think that that 
circumscribes and, and underscores the, the role that media plays, you know, and, and demagogues can really have a lot of influence on the shape of society and the behavior of individuals. It's frightening when somebody like that has a, a mass audience. Exactly. So, actually, I wanted to follow on Ruth's commentary about gun violence with an interesting article that I, I found in Counterpunch by Stephen Eisenman, who discusses mass shootings by young white men as a symptom of incipient fascism come to the United States. And he says, quote, fascism, unlike COVID, can't be diagnosed with a nose swab, but its symptoms are unmistakable and sometimes fatal. It's fair to say that it killed seven people in Highland Park and injured 30 others there. It was also deadly in El Paso, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and Uvalde. He's identified nine characteristics that prevail in pre-fascist and extant fascist societies that sound eerily familiar, and I'll go through them. The first is militarism and a culture of violence. The next is the cult of the leader, read Donald Trump. The third, antagonism to democracy. We've got plenty of that around. <laughs> Fourth is deferral to authority, the authority of elites. Next is racism, another ubiquitous phenomenon in our society. Sixth, the strict control of both gender expression and sexual reproduction. Next is denigration of science, and I will add the denigration of any fact-based inquiry. Next is the ubiquity of lies and conspiracy theories. And finally, the bringing of government and civil society to heal in order to enforce one-party rule. As I said, these, these sound eerily familiar in our present moment in, in this society. But he zeroes in on the individual behavior and the individual per se to try to explain some of the extreme violence and mass murder that we've been witnessing by individuals in society. He's trying to explain mass murder in our society by individuals. I think it's quite interesting. And he looks at a book called Male Fantasies, which was written by Klaus Thewelite, that described the transformation of decommissioned German soldiers after World War One into mercenary militias called Freikorps. You might have heard of those. These bands were responsible for political assassinations and the brutal repression of protesting German workers, communists, feminists, and social democrats. By the late 1920s, they became the stormtroopers that enabled Hitler's rise to power. Some became prominent Nazis, like Rudolf Hess, who emerged from their ranks. Many of the men studied by Thewelite were subjected to stern discipline as children and then further brutalized as soldiers in wartime trenches. Consequently, they developed a sense that they had been hollowed out or that they had been overcome by an, quote, alien within. This foreign being... <laughs> that now possessed them was hungry and dangerous and could find relief only in violence, especially against a crowd or the crowd. While the ex-soldier was stern, bounded, firm, and resolute, the crowd was vivid, thriving, shapeless, feminine, so 
social, communal, and sexual, everything that the alien being was not. It had to be destroyed by the individual now possessed by the alien. So this interesting explanation or potential explanation of how these young men who are finding that their only pathway is to destroy large gatherings of people, it seems so irrational and so utterly inexplicable. And yet here is uh, an interesting, I think, explanation of it. But anyway, were Robert Cremio III and his fellow mass murderers unwitting or conscious foot soldiers in an emerging American fascist front? It's definitely food for thought, but it's hard to ignore the alarm bells harshly clanging as we uh, witness these things. Well, the last point you you made about the brutalizing of uh, German soldiers of World War One into the creatures uh, between the wars and in World War Two is is kind of predictive. Do you think of uh, some of the behavior of Russian troops that we've seen in Ukraine? especially in towns where they ha- have temporary victories and then defeat or defeat and then a sudden chance to um, inflict punishment for that? You know what I mean? The, 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 some of the instances of brutality that we see on the news, I don't know how many instances there are, but we do see them on the news of the, of the Russian soldiers taking out their frustrations perhaps on, uh, on the people of Ukraine. Yeah, let's not forget the uh, the brutal behavior of the Azov battalions that went and slaughtered people in the Donbass region mm-hmm. before this whole thing started. I mean, it was part of the, the build-up to the war and, and to some extent that Putin's uh, justification for, inv- for the invasion was that brutality where Russian-speaking and Russian-leaning Ukrainians were brutally treated by the Azov battalions. I mean, how do you explain that, you know? These guys were basically neo-Nazis, the Azov battalion. But how did they become neo-Nazis? What was the uh, Petri dish that, that allowed them to develop and evolve in that way? I find it interesting that uh, Eisenman has really, I think, come up with a potential analogy to the type of violence that's happening in our society by individuals, you know, individual males who really are compelled somehow to do this and to adopt these uh, political positions which justify it. It's very interesting. It's it's almost as if they, what they, they suddenly found a club that they could join, <laughs> um, where they, where their behavior was what was being encouraged rather than what was being uh, suppressed. And these clubs exist online, apparently, mm. that uh, celebrate murder, mass murder. Scott, what what have you been focusing on as we uh, <laughs> try to emerge from this obsession with violent behavior that we've been indulging in here? Yeah, I guess uh, I'm going to turn to violence of the state, which means uh, I think a lot of people are very angry and upset over where the Supreme Court is taking this country. Are we going back to 1950? Are we going back to 1868? Seems pretty clear from... Uh, you know, with the writings of Alito in this uh, abortion case, that he does want to go back to 1868. <laughs> and I, I don't think uh, the majority of this country are going to sit quietly and allow that to happen. And we should keep in mind, if I've got a, more to say on, on the Supreme Court uh, rulings 
that we've seen come down recently. But I think we have to keep in mind that uh, five of the six conservative justices on the court today were appointed by Republican presidents who initially lost the popular vote and were only in office because of the Electoral College, which is unique to America. There's no other uh, democracy in the world that employs this system where the loser of the election wins the election and is placed Mm -hmm. in office. And, of course, uh, those presidents, and we're talking about George W. Bush and... um, and uh, Trump appointed, uh, you know, these host of like extremist conservative uh, Supreme Court justices, and then of course you have a Senate, which is uh, not representative of the ma- majority of Americans. Uh, you know, Ro- Rhode Island and South Dakota have the same number of senators as California, with their vastly large differences in population. So we don't have a democratic system, and that's at the base of really understanding the Supreme Court and why it doesn't reflect majority opinion. And just to uh, take off on that, the Supreme Court's extremist six-member majority has handed uh, these several rulings down, overturning decades of precedents and settled law. And, of course, we're talking about abortion rights, restrictions on guns in New York State, which... uh, will filter down to other state regulations, weakening of the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate pollution and carbon emissions, further tearing down the separation between church and state, and removing accountability for police officers who fail to give criminal suspects their Miranda warnings on their right to remain silent after arrest. This uh, set of rulings by the Supreme Court may just be the beginning of a full-scale attack on individual rights and the government's ability to regulate corporate abuses that have been won over many, many decades. There's growing concern among people in this country that the Supreme Court could, and then in the very near future, strike down laws protecting contraception, access uh, to all manner of uh, uh, contraception, be it uh, just regular uh, uh, contraception that uh, couples practice. Same-sex intimate relationships are also on the block, as well as gay marriage. And that was not, you know, some paranoia of some crazy uh, uh, leftist commentator. That is actually uh, what uh, Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion in the Supreme Court Roe versus Wade decision. He actually called out those other rights to be, quote-unquote, reviewed. He, he didn't mention the loving decision, though, did he? No, a, a, uh, interracial marriage was not on his list mm. and because he is in an inter... For people who don't know, he is in an interracial uh, marriage. So, you know, I, I did want to uh, speak to the money funding this this kind of move to the extreme right that doesn't reflect popular opinion And uh, when it comes to criminalizing abortion in particular, now in uh, 26 states ultimately, we we really need to know who's funding the politicians drafting and implementing these laws. Um, There's a publication called Business Insider, and they did an investigation that found that contributions from dozens of well-known corporations or their affiliated PACs played a decisive role in bankrolling those lawmakers behind 13 state trigger laws written to take effect immediately when 
uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned. The state legislators and governors responsible for these laws passed between 2005 and 2022 this year are overwhelmingly Republican, and they relied heavily on Republican parties and political action committees for campaign contributions, but they were also backed by companies that are part of your daily life, such as AT&T, Comcast Corporation, CVS, Citigroup, Walmart, Anheuser-Busch, ExxonMobil, UPS, which each gave $190,000 to the efforts, in some cases more. And some of these familiar brands have been endorsed by celebrities who are women's rights advocates, including the feminist icon Serena Williams, the tennis star, and Rosario Dawson, who have each served as paid spokespeople for AT&T. AT&T gave more than $1 million to politicians behind these anti-abortion trigger laws in 13, sta- in 13 states. You know, it's also critically important, I think, right now in this moment, to follow the money when it comes to who is funding the federal and state elected officials who supported Trump and the Republican Party's plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election, subvert democracy, and burn the U.S. Constitution. This may, as House lawmakers probed and exposed the Republican Party's deep ties to the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol, a new report revealed that corporations and industry groups were busy shelling out millions of dollars to Republicans who voted against certifying the 2020 election. Fortune 500 companies and trade associations gave over $1.9 million to election objectors in just one month. And there's a group called Accountable U.S., which I just found recently, and they had a report that was released just this past week Uh, And they identified that donations came from corporations like Boeing, Exxon, Anthem, Lockheed Martin, and a long list of other companies, many of which gave tens of thousands of dollars to the group of lawmakers that tried to stop uh, the certification of the winner of the 2020 presidential election. This brings the total amount of donations to election objectors between the attack last year and this past May to over $18 million to these treasonous bastards, if I could take some license there. (laughs) Um, Nine companies and trade groups, including Kraft, MetLife, and State Farm, made donations to election objectors in May for the first time since the attack. The report found that uh, $40,500 was given by Kraft and State Farm. They'd both earlier made pledges to stop donating to election objectors to stop federal uh, political donations altogether after the attack, but obviously they've had second thoughts. Another analysis done last month by uh, the same group, Accountable.us, is where you can find them on the Internet. Uh, They found that corporate groups have given at least $825,000 to people who've been subpoenaed or requested uh, for interviews by the January 6th committee including uh, representatives Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, and Jim Jordan, a representative of of Ohio, who's uh, particularly obnoxious when you get him in front of a microphone. So in conclusion here, the majority of the American people, I believe, would certainly condemn these companies if they knew 
They were aiding and abetting the lawmakers who wanted to delegitimize the votes of tens of millions of Americans and, in essence, destroy what's left of our deeply flawed democracy. It may be time, again, this is my view, it may be time for an organized campaign to boycott these companies until they stop funding the politicians who these days have aligned themselves with fascist white supremacist armed terrorist groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and other armed militia groups. The alliance we are now forming, or the alliance we now see uh, being formed between these corporations and fascist politicians is an echo of one of the darkest times in modern world history. And this kind of bring us, brings us full circle to uh, some of the things that Richard was talking about in terms of the study of uh, the period between World War I and World War II. But the, this alliance between corporations and these fas- fascist politicians uh, you know, is an echo of what we saw occur in World War II that ended in the deaths of some 50 million people. And uh, I'm not making predictions that what we're seeing unfold here in America is going to lead to that, but it's certainly not going to lead anywhere uh, that strengthens democracy in this country, but primarily just the opposite. You know, I I get a lot of uh, notes from companies saying, what do you think of our services? But they always give you like a limited checklist mm. that you can you can say terrible, wonderful, okay, and terrific. And then they ask you specific things and they never ask you anything else. But right. I have four times switched out of CVS to local pharmacies that go out of business, probably because of competition from CVS and roll their prescriptions over to CVS so mm. that I don't lose access to my to my right, drugs, right. Um, and and no corporation asks, was the rollover to me uh, fine with you, or did you really resent it? Nobody wants to know that. And they don't tell you who they're funding. That's correct. In terms correct. of uh, attack on democracy. Correct. But I'd be uh, curious about your thought. I mean, I don't think it's, I, listen, it, it came to me as, a, not a surprise, but I was happy to find this research about which companies are supporting the, the politicians that are... Uh, you know, opposed to, to uh, providing women autonomy over their own bodies and these same politicians who are uh, supporting the politicians trying to overturn our democracy. Uh, I think most people don't know that. And I, I suspect that this is by design because the major corporate media, these are their, their sponsors, their colleagues on the the interlocking directorates of these major media companies. Um, You know, I don't think we're going to hear much about corporate support for these fascist and anti-abortionists. We're going to have to turn to to independent media to get that message out. And it's it's a tall order. It's going to be tough. Doesn't the word uh, fascism come from a root that refers to Roman axes and the handles that were composed oh, of, yeah, that, of uh, different that, a fashion, of numerous fashion. twigs, yeah. right? And yeah. so when we get any kind of organization that where the government and the uh, church and the uh, perhaps corporations, or some, something rep- representing the polis anyway, are working together, that is technically and quite often in effect as well fascism. And that we can use legitimately in this situation, I would think. Apparently, we've lost Richard. I'm going to get him back on the phone. So you. Talk. Oh, God. That's the only Latin I really remember. 
when we when we see I, I mean it's it's always scary if you if you are a serious churchgoer it's scary if you hear hear that places that you shop have contributed to some church that you don't approve of or the places that you would never in a million years shop have made contributions to the church you belong to. That's disconcerting. You wonder what's going on that you don't know about. It probably is not the sheer goodness of the heart. There's probably some kind of comfort arrangement in there. But usually we don't hear about those donations or those alliances or those affiliations. We just, we think we're picking separate entities, uh, but sometimes we're not. I, uh, I do have Richard back on the line. Just, uh, sorry about that. I had to turn. I was, yeah, indeed, I was uh, dropped unceremoniously. The, the lines and, uh, to Cambodia aren't what they used to be, Richard. So <laughs> say. And yeah, we're talking about one. AT&T. Maybe it's not a coincidence. <laughs> right. It's, one, it's the one drawback. But, yeah, I've been listening um, to the uh, your report, Scott. It's, it's quite unnerving. And I think Ruthann's point about the coalescence of corporations with these kind of uh, politicians who are going back to that list that I read, you know, anti-democratic, they fear the will of large numbers of people uh, expressing democratic ideas and to a more just society, they resist those. So you have that, uh, the corporations, those politicians, the injection of a sort of a, a religious patina over the whole thing. Those are have been identified and I think are clearly demonstrated as we examine the history of uh, fascism as it emerges in, in different societies. Mm-hmm. Those indeed are the warning elements that should put us all on high alert. I was thinking it might be good to open up the phone lines to see what other listeners might be thinking about these topics or anything else. We do mm-hmm. have a, a phone line that you can call us at 203-336-9756 if you have a thought about uh, anything we've been talking about or something else you want to add to the conversation Give us a call at 203-336-9756. You know, I did want to just uh, highlight um, one issue that we haven't talked about today, and uh, it's really hanging over this country like a sort of Damocles. Last month, the Supreme Court announced that it would be uh, taking up a case called Moore versus Harper this fall, a case stemming from a ruling by the North Carolina Supreme Court that its state constitution prohibits extreme gerrymandering. In the case, Republican legislative leaders asked the Supreme Court to rule that it is unconstitutional for state courts and constitutions to protect federal voting rights. In their view, only state legislatures should be able to determine election rules, absent intervention by Congress. By this logic, state legislatures under the quote, independent state legislature theory, unquote, which was promoted by Trump, uh, Easton, and and the other uh, coup plotters, that very same uh, theory, bogus theory in my view, could reject presidential election results they don't like. They could subvert the results of the next presidential election, throwing out the majority of voters' uh, ballots. And if this extremist majority in the Supreme Court really discounts state constitutions in allowing the state legislatures to control presidential election outcomes rather than the voters, this country is over. 
and there yeah. will be chaos. And I don't think the majority of people will be will be uh, taking this uh, in stride. I think there will be a severe reaction if they do this. And I, you know, I I'm not an advocate of violence at all, and I don't advocate violence. But I I can't help but think. We're entering a more violent period in this mm. nation's history if the Supreme Court goes there. And it, it, you'd think that they have a, we have reason to fear it because voters have taken mostly in stride the, uh, effort, the re, uh, redistricting of towns and, and states uh, to change the balance of, uh, let's say, power between the, uh, between the two major parties. We watch the the uh, gerrymandering of uh, election dis- districts every every time there's a census. We know that the most recent census was cut short by the then president, uh, probably before the uh, populations that are notoriously the slowest to get in on these elections had had a, had had a say. Richard, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Uh, oh, okay. At any rate. Well, I was taking that call. I missed what you were talking about. Oh, the, you missed what I was. I think yeah. uh, Ruth Ann was speaking. Oh yeah, I, I was just thinking of uh, not replying to the person who called, but I, I we, maybe we should occasionally announce that this is a political program. We're looking at political. I don't issues. think anybody could be listening and otherwise think that it was not. Yeah, he <laughs> he seemed to, to want to tell us that. Um, Oh, and the only other thing I wanted to say is that we voters also don't seem to have any qualms at the way that prisoners at, at uh, private prisons and and state prisons, uh, prisoners incarcerated outside their own state, count in the state where they're incarcerated rather than in the state where their families are located and where where they lived. Uh, and generally, the the um, uh, what are the districts, the electoral districts where the prisons are, lean right, and that is throwing the the balance of uh, of allocation of resources and theoretically the importance of votes uh, in a particular way uh, using the penal system uh, rather than a genuine population. So you're saying that the, when the, they do the census... They count them as residents of the state where their prison is, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Because I think the thing that you're supposed to count, I know the original language of the census was, how many people are sleeping under your roof tonight? And that was how you, they counted, just to so that they could, like... Uh, freeze the population in order to count them and then they could begin to go back to their movements again. So if you had a family of six but three of them had gone off to uh, gone camping in Colorado, then they would be Coloradans at the time of the census if that happened to be when the census was taken. Mm. I don't know if they still do it that way now, but I do know that when I was learning about the census, that was what what counted, was where you were that current Time, not where your family lived or where you consider to be home. So the more prisons there are in red states, the more population uh, there technically is in red states. Mm-hmm. And preventing uh, inmates from voting, of course, is right. widespread. I right. think there are only two states that allow prisoners to vote. Vermont is one of them. So there you are, a resident of that state forbidden to, to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, Scott, the point you made about this 
Supreme Court case. Would you, would you repeat the name of that case? Yeah, everybody should know more about this. And this really could be a turning point. Uh, there may have been many turning points, but this could be one of the most serious in terms of uh, the Supreme Court. The case is called Moore, M-O-O-R-E versus Harper. And it mm-hmm. comes from North Carolina. Yeah. And they're trying to prevent the state Supreme Court from uh, making uh, the state legislature, uh, when it comes to election rules or uh, district boundaries or any of that, uh, any of those decisions related to elections, they're trying to uh, make the, the state legislature the final say in any of those matters. So in other words, if the uh, district boundaries or election rules violated the state's constitution, the state Supreme Court or any court would have no jurisdiction. So if it's a, you know, it's a, it's a supermajority Republican state legislature, they could overturn theoretically if the Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, rules in favor of this, of this case, that state legislature could basically say, okay, the people of our state voted for candidate X, but we're going to, we're going to take all of our electors in the presidential election in this, you know, twisted, uh, really anti-democratic system of electoral college. We can give it to the other candidate, which is exactly what Trump and Eastman and that whole crew of coup plotters were trying to do. So this would really affirm um, yeah. what they were doing and, and allow uh, that subversion of democracy to occur in 2024, third, theoretically. Mm-hmm. This is indeed the moment (laughs) when that decision comes down, we will know the fate of this country, whether it's literally off the rails into one party rule or whether we can live to fight another day, you know, in terms of extending social justice and a fair society to more and more people, which in his own slightly feckless way, Joe Biden is trying to do. That was that's what the. initial push with all the legislation that was passed in the House that was supported by Biden and that was stopped dead in its tracks when it crossed over to the Senate, due in large part by two senators, Sinema and Manchin. And the filibuster. Uh, Yes, and and their refusal to, to vote to overturn or suspend the filibuster. Right. Those those two senators. (laughs) It's amazing how so much of the fate of this country can hinge on these couple of uh, bad actors. It's it's them, and of course it's Sauron, the king of America, also uh, also uh, <laughs> uh, you know the the uh, Senate Majority Leader, who has referred for years to his great court project, which is to load the federal benches at every level with right wing Republicans, and we can see that. I mean, the Supreme Court is his great triumph now you take a look at it and you take a look at those two those two really slimy deals the the one refusing to appoint um or even interview obama's last nomination garland and the one rushing uh what's her name coney barrett Barrett, uh rushing her into the court in at the last minute just to make sure that if hillary happened to win there would be the that uh wonderful uh, Republicans sitting there. And every time you look at the majority on the Supreme Court, which seems to be like insurmountable if we continue to let judges stay there until they die, it seems insurmountable what Mitch has done there. And he's done it at the uh, lower level federal bench as well. Yes, indeed. 
Well, we're, we're almost out of time here, so I've put the theme music up, and we'll thank our listeners for joining us today. And uh, we hope you'll join us next month on Saturday, August 12th, when we'll be back with another edition of this program, Resistance Roundtable, here today. And thanking you again for listening and your support for this station is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, Richard Hill, and myself, Scott Harris. Do stay tuned. Lots more coming. Great programming here on WPKN.